you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today's episode is going to be a treat for you, not only because the content is awesome and applicable in your life, but because the guest is awesome and his life is applicable in your life. Alex Sheen is on a mission to bettering humanity through promises made and promises kept. As the founder of the social movement, it's called Because I Said I Would, Alex believes individuals can create a world where promises are kept, fostering trust, empathy, and then positive change. Inspired by his dad's legacy, it's a beautiful story, Alex has distributed more than 14 million promise cards in more than 178 countries around the world with the intention of bridging the gap between intention and action, between the idea of something and the reality of it in your life. Today, Alex shares how his father's accountability and commitment shaped him how promises are more than just words. They are commitments that shape our character and define our relationships and ultimately what this idea means for you. My friends, it's an emotional conversation in particular at the end when I find out why Alex is taking the call where he's taking the call from. Stick around for that. In a society where it is so easy to leave ourselves and others disappointed with broken commitments, this conversation will remind you of the life-changing impact we can make by simply keeping our word. So without further ado, buckle up, get ready for the ride as I bring on my friend, and now yours, his name is Alex Sheen. Alex, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. I have been a massive fan of your work, of your mission, of your impact since I first read about you almost a decade ago. For those who uh, may not have read that same article or seen a few of the videos or worn the cool t-shirts that you're wearing right now, how would you introduce yourself? You know, I know there's more grandiose ways of doing it, but I say uh, I work for a charity that uh, does programming and character development and resiliency skills in schools and prisons. When I am introduced to somebody, obviously there's a TED Talks and all kinds of dramatic stories and things, but at the end of the day, I I want them to know the work of our charity. And you got to put that in language that another person understands. And so whatever kind of drama uh, has happened to me or, or whatever, you know, I just try to keep it simple and straightforward. So they know that 
I work for a charity that's trying to help people through tough times. We're going to talk about that charity. We're going to talk about their tough times. And almost always when you meet someone who's on the front line trying to serve others, it's because they experience their own tough time and they learn some lessons through that tough time. So we're going to back up a little bit rather than talking about what you're doing right now and the impact that you're having and some of the struggles that you currently face. I'd like to go back a little bit farther than that. Would, would you talk about your life growing up? I was the only Asian kid and like 350 people in my graduating class uh, in a, a little bit more rural, almost suburban type of area outside of Columbus, Ohio. And growing up, I was just uh, always kind of distracted, a high energy type of person. That's not always a good thing. Being a little different from all my peers, everyone was Caucasian basically in our community, can have its challenges. You know, there's some racism here and there and things like that happen. But honestly, I thought myself as special. Uh, I think it'd be hard not to, to mention that as a difference as, uh, as I was growing up. I didn't realize this until honestly, I had to pick a major in, in college, but I really liked business and I didn't know that as a kid because it was a lemonade stand. Like I sold some of my toys out of my closet at some point because I was like, oh, I don't need these. I need some money. And, you know, I, the principal brought me into their office one day in the seventh grade because I would, my mom would take me to the gas station in the morning and I would buy a bunch of candy. And then I realized I could have a huge markup if I just sold it out of my locker, you know, because the Snickers was like, I don't know, back then, like, you know, 50 cents or whatever. But I was like, I could easily get a dollar this at lunch, I started to, to realize that I didn't mind business. And I think that was something that defined my adolescence. But, you know, there's all kinds of dimensions of, of growing up. You mentioned I'm the only one that looked like this in my school. And that might be true, but not the only one that looked like this in your community, because you are a, a duplicate image of the man you call dad. So talk, just talk about your dad for a moment. What, what was it about your father that you looked up to as a kid? Yeah. And, and John, the thing I looked up to him wasn't his looks because he was not a good looking man. I remember like when I was a kid, I was like, man, dad's not actually that handsome. And, uh, and uh, then I grew up to look exactly like him. You know, my dad was sort of that angry Asian immigrant father who had like impossibly high standards. You know, he worked very hard to make it in this country. You know, he's a pharmacist. He has his MBA, you know, and he, he is a very Hard, hard worker and to the point where I, I almost couldn't relate to it in in most of my life because despite my interest in business or whatever I just characterized it doesn't mean I was disciplined you know I was just like oh a new little venture I'm going to try this thing I thought it was like a little game or something but that doesn't mean I had the self-control to stick with it or to work long hours you know I knew my dad many times by the sound of the garage door opening when I'm already in bed because you know, a pharmacist at a hospital works 12s and, you know, he's a director, so he had to take care of emergencies and things like that. So I think my father, it was very hard to understand not only his work ethic, but some of his anger. You know, I'm not talking like he's a horrible, horrible person or something like that, but he would get upset as time would unfold. I would realize that the reason he would get upset sometimes was that he would do what he said he was going to do. Right. Like he's going to be there, show up, pay the bill, whatever it was. And I wouldn't, my mom wouldn't, my brother wouldn't. And he just didn't understand why you would do that to another person. He wouldn't maybe ever even phrase it this way. But uh, I think that's where some of his frustration came from. 
what you're hinting to really what set him apart from so many other neighbors and human beings that when he said he would do something, he did the thing he said he would do. And you learn to fall in love with that. And you learn to fall in love and respect this man. And you ultimately graduated university. And I'm just going to speed up the tape a little bit. The 4th of July is a holiday your father learned to celebrate, and he certainly raised his son to celebrate it. But there was a time where uh, back in 2011, you received some news and he received some news that wasn't worthy of being celebrated. Would you, would you talk about that? I was in the kitchen that day of our house just outside of Columbus, Ohio, and he hears his phone ring. He grabs it. He turns over and it's, it's the hospital calling. Uh, that may seem like something to me, you and others, but that's where he works. So that doesn't mean anything. He answers. And on the other line is a friend of his, uh, a doctor. And my father is informed that he has been diagnosed with stage four small cell lung cancer. My father had a bit of an ailment and they run tests, of course. And my dad worked in a hospital for 25 years. So he understood things that I, I would only come to understand much later. He probably knew that lung cancer is a second leading cause of cancer-related death. It is uh, not very curable. With that, uh, would, would start his journey with cancer. A journey that that typical toughness that we attribute to first generation immigrants, he he embraced man. He, he embraced the fight, and although he wasn't given much of an opportunity to beat this thing, it seemed like for a while, from my understanding, he had the thing beat. Yeah, his MRIs, his CAT scans, and all these things that they do to you, and and in these scans, they could not see and this this cancer i mean it started to shrink because of chemotherapy and radiation to the point where it wouldn't almost show up and my father was a skeptic you know he was a, a strong critical thinker to the point where you know sometimes that can even be negative because you just analyze something so so deeply that you you can see almost impossibility and and even him the skeptic he thought it was a miracle that he was saved and so I remember us celebrating. I remember um, feeling like I could finally take the pedal off, didn't have to take all these vacation days from work, didn't have to keep driving two hours on the weekends to see my dad. And there's not going to be many more things I regret than, than that. Mm. So you pull the, uh, the accelerator off a little bit. You party with your dad at Sunflower. Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. How do you know that? Man, I'm doing my work here, man. I, yeah, I, I've you are. You for a while, so I, I've 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 dug up all all the bodies and everything else. I know where you moved them. <laughs> so you you yeah, party at that sunflower with dad, and you celebrate his life and his safe passage from cancer. And then it's not long after that it comes back, and mm -hmm. with a vengeance, you're mm -hmm. ultimately going to lose your dad. I don't think that's mm -hmm. a surprise in this story, but it's still painful. Was mm -hmm. there a conversation? or an experience you had with your dad before he died that just sticks out as, man, I'm just glad we had that moment together. You know, I wish my memory was stronger, to be honest with you. What I do know is that when my father was in this path of, of certain and terminal illness, I started searching on the internet. I was like, I was a, I'm a market researcher by academic background, like, you know, marketing major, but I focused on market research, competitive intelligence, that kind of thing. And so I just like, I'll just search this. If I don't know what to do, I just look it up. I start looking at like, what do you say to somebody who's dying? Your search history is strange at, at that point in your life. I remember tripping across a couple of thoughts that just, you know, at 26 years old, 27, I didn't ever think of because I didn't think of death. 
perhaps as much as we all should. And, and the, the, one of those thoughts was that it is an incredible journey, meaning every single person, John, you and I on this planet, even with different religious perspectives, there's always a thought of like, what actually happens after this? And no one knows and everybody wants to. And you're about to find out. And there's something about that. If you look at it the right way, which is, and if you got no other choice but to look at it, then, well, maybe that's a perspective you take. You're about to go on the biggest adventure ever. The second thought, which, you know, I shared with him, and I don't even remember his reaction or if he had one, but it carries with me to this day, is that we often look at the future without us in it, and we have a great amount of sorrow and disappointment, anxiety, and a number of very heavy emotions uh, about what it could have been and, and what we would have wanted to do. However, in that infinite amount of time that's after we exist, it also is true that before we were born, that same infinite amount of time existed. We don't have sorrow about that. We never said, I wish I was born five months earlier, if I had two more years, if it was 1983 instead of 85. It's the same thing. In fact, what is about to happen to us has already happened to us. Again, I'm not saying that this is a perspective that necessarily gave him comfort or me comfort or should give anybody internal on this cover. I just remember when we talk about conversations, I remember tripping across that idea and I said, huh, I've never actually thought about that. You're with your dad when he dies and you made a commitment to him that you would deliver his eulogy. Mm -hmm. Man, you know, the closer you you are to someone, the more difficult it is to do that so often. And there's no Mm -hmm. one closer to to a father than his son. So here Mm -hmm. you are that day. And what do you remember about assembling the words you wanted to share? You know, the first thing is like they always said, I look like my dad, but I never actually really believed that until um, until his disease. And what I mean by that is he got so skinny and I was skinnier at the time too. And I remember days after and leading up to it, I would brush my teeth and I, for the first time in my, honestly, first time in my life, I saw what people were saying and in a way that was, it was just kind of tough to look at. When I was writing my father's eulogy, I wanted to remember him not by how he died, but by how he lived. And I thought about what is the most defining character quality of, of my father. And it was that he showed up. If he said he was going to be there, my father was far from a perfect person, but if he said he was going to be there, he he showed up. And I remember even at a lacrosse game, my, my dad grew up in Hong Kong. He doesn't care about lacrosse. He didn't, you know, barely even knew what it was despite his son playing it all those years. He doesn't want to go to this game. It's raining. He just worked all day. But my father didn't need to be motivated to do things. Even if he hated it, he could drag himself through it, which is, we can maybe talk about that later. But those, I remember when it's like, oh, dad's going to be here. I would look into the, the crowd and it wasn't, is he going to be here? It's just like, oh, where, I wonder where he's sitting. And that's a very different thought because my mom was like, well, I don't know if she's going to show up. We'll see what happens. It's not like she was a terrible person, right? But in fact, if anything, she was nicer than my dad, you know, kinder and all that good stuff. But you had to ask that question of whether she was going to show up or not. And a lacrosse team doesn't matter very much, but you extrapolate that across humanity and every other part of our life. You know, how many promises do we make to our physical health, our mental health, to the causes we love, our families that we never honor? Really, a, a small promise like showing up is a canary in a coal mine. 
to a very lar a much larger issue about character and resilience. Because I said I would. It's the title you, it. you gave. It's the message your father lived. It's the one you shared with the room. And it's the one you had them all answer that day. Literally mm -hmm. giving out cards. I've never heard of anyone doing this in a eulogy where you not only truly celebrate someone's life, but invite them to be more bold in the way they live their lives afterwards. What, what was the response from just maybe one or all of the individuals who left that service that day as they leave with cards of a commitment made? Honestly, I don't even think it was that strong. Meaning like it was more of the internet that favored whatever it is that I was saying. What I didn't want to happen that day John is probably something that you have experienced. Even in the, the worst of tragedies, we what, take a half day off work. Uh, we're all sad together for a while. And it seems like everybody, but a very few, they just move on. They live their lives. And I was struggling with that thought that my father, who wasn't popular, right? He's an introvert, if anything. This nerdy pharmacist dude who just liked to golf excessively like he wasn't you would never write home about Al Sheen he was going to be erased from this earth and no one was ever going to think about him again and I struggled with that thought that I was going to just deliver the speech and everyone's going to move on so I created what we call now a, a promise card it says because I said I would in the corner nothing else on either side you write a promise on the card you give it to the person you're making that commitment to. And when you fulfill that promise, you earn the card back. It's as, as simple like that, as that. You tell them, this is my property. I'm coming back for it. It's going to be called because I said I would. Because uh, they may forget about my father, but they will remember what matters to them. Mm. And so I handed out these promise cards to people that day at the, uh, at the funeral. I offered to send 10 cards to anybody anywhere in the world at no cost to anyone. I made a post to social media. And that was the dumbest financial decision I've ever made in my entire life. We have distributed over 14.7 million promise cards to 178 countries around the world and by request only. People write on this card small things. Maybe it's a four-year-old girl just having a badge of honor to sleep in her own room tonight, you know? But then it would get serious and, and people, kids would write things like, I will not kill myself or I will testify in the hearing against my rapist things that require a great deal of resilience, a great deal of character and mental health habits. And so that's why we would come to focus on these things. I don't mind handing out promise cards and philosophically talking about it, but it's really this thought of what are the, the collection of skills that it actually takes yes. to have the self-control to, to do this. Well, you're so humble that you just left the eulogy you left the Facebook post where you you sold and quote your first five cards, and then you sped through the fact that you have now delivered 14.7 million in 178 countries around the world. And some of the promises you've heard back are quite literally life-saving and life-changing. And before you got to the 14.7 million, you got to one and then two and then three, and you felt momentum behind this. And you realized, man, I've, I've got to stop doing work to live mm -hmm. mission. And I think it's one of the, your most remarkable stories because you weren't sure what would ultimately allow you to have this bold conversation with your boss. You know, I'm leaving. Yeah. Never fun words to say that to anybody, but right. words you ultimately realize if I'm going to grow my mission, I've got to do this. I got to leave work. W would you share the story of a promise you received back, a letter you received and how that freed you to leave work? 
this whole thing was going viral through social media. I was making all this money from the software company, just doing my job. And then I was spending tens of thousands of dollars of my paychecks on stamps and envelopes because people weren't donating and that's fine. But I knew what people were writing. And so I just paid for everything myself. So one day in February of 2013, I'm, I walked back to my desk at work and there's this letter that's sitting there. It's anonymous. It has Alex Sheen on the envelope, but nobody else's name is on it. And in this letter, uh, this person describes that they're going through a struggle, that they were just appreciative of the cards that we sent out because they had come to this moment where they didn't think life was worth living. And they thought about taking their own life. And so they almost did that. But then they started writing a few promised cards and realized that they that life was worth living, that they did have a purpose, and they were just writing this letter to thank me for these cards. And they said, I know I'm supposed to write this in a card, but I'm going to promise you that I will not give up. The weight of all these other things uh, of just trying to financially balance and this viral thing was whatever, but this was a tipping point of sorts for me. Uh, to say, well, I got to leave my job. However, I was the youngest manager in an enterprise software company of 1,400 employees. I made six-figure income, five-figure bonuses, five-figure stock options. You know, it, it was that was very difficult to, to do, but I said, this letter is it. So I asked for a meeting with my boss. We didn't know what the meeting was about, but that I was going to quit, but she agreed to it. And I go in there. I say, boss, if you could just read this letter or make it a lot easier. She says, okay. She starts reading it. And then she stops. She looks up at me and she says, Alex, this letter, Alex, this letter is from my daughter. And she said, uh, this is her handwriting and this is about her. And, and that envelope you're holding, those are the kind of envelopes I have on my kitchen counter. When did she give this to you? My boss's daughter had been suffering through depression, which a lot of Americans are feeling right about now. And she felt that because she was overweight and kids would pick on her. Uh, so she would come home not knowing how to handle this emotion, not able to regulate those emotions. And so she would cut herself, but she knew about promise cards long before the world. And it's just a one set piece of paper. There's no magic to it, but um, she would tell somebody that she had a goal and she uh, would say not forever, because forever is too far to hold, but how about just not today? And we do that again tomorrow. We'll see if these cards can stack up. Mm. And that's how I quit my job. Fast forward 10 years later, I'm Still wearing the same shirt. Uh, it's a different copy, John. I was, but, uh, I was gonna ask. I, I didn't want to be rude, but it looks yeah. familiar. I'm I'm very committed to our cause because I know how important self-control is in society and the journeys of all of our supporters. But what I felt back then was in the early days was almost a guilt because motivational speakers, whatever you want to call that, you know, you pump people up and they make these promises, and I would be like, I I don't think you're actually going to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have the resiliency skills. I wouldn't say that to someone's face, but in the back of my mind, I was like, it's like, it, it, what, what you're about to attempt is extremely difficult and, and you need habits and tactics to do that. And that's what we focus on in schools and prisons. But yeah, that's how uh, I left my job. I want you to share one more story and then help me understand the habits and the practices so that our friends who are making commitments and promises because they said they would help them live into it so the you know you've received thousands tens of thousands probably hundreds of thousands of emails letters comments back 
the one, many, many, many moved me, but a fellow named Garth Callahan. Hmm. I'm assuming you remember Garth Callahan. Absolutely. First of all, the, the daughter, 14-year-old daughter of your boss blows me away. And the fact that God's will brought your boss's daughter's handwriting in front of her that day. It's just a, it's an incredible conversation that you had collectively. And the only one that might move me as much as that is Garth. So tell me about Garth Callahan. As the story begins, he's like 49 years old. He's outside of Washington, D.C., a little closer to Richmond, Virginia, actually. He writes these little napkin notes for his, his daughter, who was in the eighth grade at the time and actually started when she was in the second grade. And it would be things like yesterday's home runs don't win today's games, Babe Ruth, you know, just these dad stuff. But one day he is told the same thing my father was. There is a growth inside of his body, in his case, kidney cancer. This is being said to him in a small white room by some doctor. I mean, he's thinking to himself, well, okay, well, I got two kidneys, right? You know, just remove one or chemotherapy. I imagine it's tough, but, you know, I got a daughter to take care of. So let's get started. Doctor just says to him, you know, Garth, you're gonna, you're gonna die of this. He's given an 8% chance of living past five years as he reflects on this closing window of time that he has. He thinks about what he's going to do to help his daughter and what happens when he's gone. And, and so he decides to write a promise card. He writes, uh, I will write 826 napkin notes for Emma. That is the exact number of days of class Emma has left until she graduates from high school. So that no matter what day he goes, no matter the day of the last goodbye, even if he cannot be there, that note is still going to be because every single one of them was written in advance, uh, just in case. Sometimes we look at our promise because we have to. Life has put us to a series of choices and that field of options gives us a level of anxiety on what we don't, we don't know what to do. I actually think a promise is not necessarily a single choice. It is, but I look at it more of uh, the elimination of choices, that there is no more A, B, or C. There are, right. there are more, no more ifs or thens. This is happening one way and one way only. It gives you something to focus on. And so... You know, that's what Garth did, and we wrote all those napkin notes. You have them listed out on your sites, and I've read through a bunch of them. The most meaningful to me is when he wrote to her, uh, there are days when I wish I would receive a miracle. Mm -hmm. And then I look into your eyes, and I realize I already have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. What, what, what person doesn't want to hear that from someone who loves them? What little girl doesn't want to hear that from her dad? And ultimately, what little girl who will lose her father doesn't want to be reminded that she was loved well, that she experienced the miracle of love in her life. And it's, it's a beautiful story that you helped author. And it's wild that this little movement has done that. So talk about the gap between the idea of saying, I will do this, and then so frequently why we don't. Help me, don't help me so much understand why we don't as much as how can we do a better job of living into our promises? You know, people don't wake up, John, in the morning and say to themselves, you know what? I want to disappoint everybody I love in this life. You know, like they don't do that. Like we we do have good intent. I believe that about human beings, uh, you know, most of the time. And 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 so one of my answers is not actually that groundbreaking. But a lot of times we don't do things because we forgot. 
the number of broken promises in the pie chart of disappointment that are just like you forgot to do that is kind of astronomical, to be honest. And over time, erodes our trust, affects our physical health, our mental health. It, it does a lot. So I'm not saying that's the most important thing, but it, it is not simple why promises are not kept. It, it is not straightforward. If keeping promises was simple, everybody would do it. They don't. Controlling your own behavior is very difficult. That's what we focus on, like 14 types of self-control, understanding, limiting beliefs, and self-fulfilling prophecies, accountability, best practices. There's just a ton of different dimensions of what, what keeps promises and certainly what breaks them. I do think another quick thought on, on why broken promises happen is that we're just so quick to jump to them. We have a very low courage of no. When's the last time someone's like, oh, Thursday, you can do that, right? You'll be there, cool, right? And you're just like, nope. <laughs> you know, like we don't say no to people. And that's a that's not a groundbreaking perspective, but then it just our ledger just keeps stacking up on all this these commitments that we have. It's a very wide spectrum of uh, of cause and effect. What about you? You've you've been on this journey for more than a decade. You made a lot of promises. You've kept a lot of those promises. What, what's for you been the most transformational promise you made and have kept? When I say transformational, I'm going to take that as almost just the importance because it might be hard to pinpoint a kind of a point in time single promise. But this is also an answer that is just, you're not going to hear me say this on stage because honestly, people find it boring. But the most transformational thing that you can do for your ability to, to reach your goals, keep your promises is diet, sleep, and exercise. People don't want to hear that because it's just kind of boring or routine. But the way that I discovered that was not only, of course, you just read personal development books. You know, that's one perspective. But here's really how that sucked in for me. I would talk to a supporter that would say, I have severe aplastic anemia. And I would have to look that up. What is severe aplastic anemia? And you would see symptoms and you would see uh, research articles and you did a WebMD or whatever you're looking at, Mayo Clinic. And then I would do the same thing when someone says, I have bipolar disorder. disorder. It's like, okay, well, I'm, of course I've heard that, but what does that really mean? Because I have to talk to this person and I don't want to be insensitive. And okay, let me read about that. And you just keep going across every spectrum. I don't care if it's cancer, depression, it doesn't matter. You will see a study about either diet, sleep, or exercise that is exactly about that thing. And one of the one of the driving factors that helps someone recover from anything is those three things. Yes. So it isn't a default stamp that they're just putting on everything. It is actual legitimate research on how the body adapts and recovers to challenge of almost every kind. There aren't necessarily silver bullets out there. The biology of humanity is what it is. While the brain is an enigma, and I, yes, there are different clever things that you can do, we cannot deny the basic physics of how, again, we repair, recover, et cetera. So that is how I keep my promises. You began eulogizing your dad, then you sent out five cards, and then onward from there around the world, and yet the movement's changed. Walk us through, because many of our listeners won't be familiar with just how expansive and, and I think excitingly, 
how more narrowed your movement has become. Talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, so when I talk about that thought of like a promise being a canary in the coal mine, this cause, if, if I could take and say anything, is, is actually not about promises. It's about the, the character qualities, the resiliency skills that lead to keeping promises. Because if you keep promises, you're honest. If you keep promises, you have self-control. If you keep promises, you hold yourself accountable. That is the value of to society and to life that we are trying to understand and support people with. Promises, it's like, yeah, people find it interesting for clicks, shares, and likes, and the emotional story of Napkin Notes dad and my boss's daughter and all that kind of stuff. I get that's why people focus on it. It's just the way social media works. It, it is really about those skills. So that's what we focus on, like in high school chapters, for example. We do one of these habit and tactics workshops once once a month. The kids make promises each month, and they say, what was my promise from last month? What's my promise this month, right? I know that sounds silly, but some people will live their whole life not in a rhythm of setting goals. Like that's just not actually a part of their culture, family, background, country, whatever it is. But if we can get these kids thinking like, yeah, you know, I work on something, accomplish it, maybe I fail, but I try to either try again, go after something else. We want to get them in that rhythm, but we also, again, have to give them those skills. The last thing they do is they make promises to other people, volunteer projects, right? So it's not just about you. Keep a promise to your community. And that's what our high school chapter program is. We do the same thing in prisons as well. It's, it's eerily similar. Like I'm saying, it's the exact same lessons in prisons because, again, it's not something that we actually teach in school. If I walk down the street and say, what are the four types of self-control? Can you name four types of negative thinking? Can you give me two accountability best practices or any sort of research on honesty? You can give this question and people would make good assumptions, but it's not actually something we formally learn. Even adults, we all still, in me, like I'm tripping across things that are kind of obvious to a psychologist, but like what I never learned until I was 37 or something, you know, like I don't know why we don't focus on this in school because it helps you get through adversities. It helps you be a, uh, not just a stronger person in some kind of intangible motivational way. If you have stronger self-control, you don't go get in fights. You There is less violence in society. There are a lot of very tangible reasons why we should teach this. So we've got these chapters in, in prison schools, and now we've started a camp where we do the same thing with kids and, and families in bereavement. Before you and I hit record and started sharing your message and your your uh, your father's legacy with our community, you shared what's going on at that camp and some of the lives that are being touched and elevated, but you also shared a recent tragedy. And after enduring a fire in my own life and then having my parents lose their house 15 years later in a second house fire, fire has devastated our life and our family. It's galvanized us, but it all it's also burned us, literally. You've experienced a fire, and I'd like you to share what happened and what's happening next and maybe how we can help. So 4.45 a.m., my dogs start barking at my house up in Cleveland, Ohio. It's very clear that something's happening. So I wake up, I, I go to this the window, and I'm on the second floor, I open it, and one of my employees is like pounding on the door. So she says, Alex, there's apparently a fire in at headquarters. You got to check your phone. You got to call Andrea right now, who's an employee that was on site. I look at my phone. I have 12 missed calls. 
I call her and she says, Alex, the event venue has caught on fire. There's no way this is not going to be a total loss. The fire department is here and it is at and past the point of no return. All of our laundry, blankets, sheets, cleaning supplies, computers, paper, all, 10 years of promise cards, all these stories that we're talking about, anything that someone gave us, of course, we intentionally literally put it up on display in this building and that uh, is all gone now. The thing is, is our, our camp, as I mentioned earlier, is we work with families in bereavement. There's a family coming in weeks from now who lost their six-year-old child, their daughter drowned and passed away six weeks ago. You work with people who have lost loved ones and you'll realize who cares about a building. I understand the sentimental nature of things. I don't know because I said it was sometimes it's about that. I don't care about promise cards or books or shirts or I care, care about human life, you know, and no one was hurt. And that you have to hang your hat on that. And 10 years of hard work and sacrifice did not build a building. It built relationships. It created connections with our supporters in the fire. So many ways we'll never touch that. So we are, we're in trouble, but we lost our capacity to operate. But John, this cause started with just this one cent piece of paper, you know, yeah, uh, nothing. So we just have to do that one more time. Uh, but now we have all these people who've been a part of our journey, like even yourself, even just knowing that we exist. And so I even just appreciate the ability to share the message with you because we're, we're fundraising to create new capacity to offset things and find a formula that continues to help these families of bereavement. The tragedy that happened to us does not stop tragedies from happening to other people. Mm -hmm. and, and I understand that we need to take a deep breath and self-care. I get all that. But we teach resiliency skills for a reason. We know how to fight the good fight. And that's what we have to continue to do. The work you do is too important to uh, be reduced to ashes after the fire. And so I don't know what this commitment's going to look like, but because I said I would, I'm going to help you raise money. I'm going to help you do a fundraiser. We're going to come out to your area and help build this thing back up. So I'm, I'm saying that with you hearing it, I'll write it down if you make me. But now I've got <laughs> my family and our community around the world hearing that as well, that I'm, I'm all in, man. This thing is going to come out of the ground again. You're going to touch more lives. And you're going to fill it with a decade more promise notes going forward. So I'm, I'm excited to brainstorm how we can help. And I'm going to take our community along for the ride so they can help too. You end almost every speech with this. But man, you can pretend to care. You can't pretend to show up. And I and we want to show up with and for you. So get ready for that. We'll share more as we learn more. Community, just so you all know. But we wrap up every single podcast with seven rapid fire questions. Through the fires of life, Alex, we rebuild and we soar even higher like the Phoenix. So question number one is, what's the best or most influential book you've ever read? You know what? I'm going to even just say The Great Courses, which is an audiobook series of uh, collegiate level courses that uh, are on a range of topics. But I think there's one called Your Deceptive Mind, and it's just different types of cognitive distortions and uh, perception errors that uh, critical thinking errors that humans have uh, that is probably one of the most impactful things that i've ever digested it is a lecture series so not quite a book question number two is going to hit a little too close to home but here it comes if your home or your entire business caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item 
what's the one thing you would grab? We had a 10 year anniversary at this camp before we owned it, we rented it just to have this celebration at a property we knew we were gonna own soon. And I was walking with a very close friend of mine and he stops me and he gives me a framed promise card. And I said, oh, thanks, man, I appreciate it. Okay, John, I we print 400,000 promise cards at a time. Like, I'm like, oh, why are you giving this to me? I have so many promise cards, it's insane. He said, no, 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 Alex, you don't remember? I'm like, I remember what, what are you talking about? He's like, when your father passed away, I came to visit you and we went to Staples and you printed the first set of promise cards and you took the first one off the top and you gave it to me. And that's this. Mm. This is the first promise card that ever existed. And that blew my tiny little mind. I would probably go in and grab that. It's beautiful. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? I got to say, dad, you know, I mean, that's a standard answer too, but I talk about a lot of stuff, John. It's very easy for me to say. I talk about my father dying all the time and it doesn't bother me, but this bothers me. I just would rush in the names of his, the, his three grandchildren. My brother had three girls and they're so cute, you know, and my dad really wanted to have grandkids, but me and my brother started late. I only have fur babies, uh, my dogs, but I know he would really like to know that. You know, the stuff of because of Sutter Wood is, uh, I'm sure he'd be interested in, but, you know, that would take too long to explain, so. <laughs> What's the best advice, Dad, or anyone else that you look up to has ever given you? I don't, I don't have to, I get to. I don't have to let my dogs out at four in the morning when they're, you know, licking my face and I'm still tired, I get to, because I had a dog that passed away in 2020. She was the center of my universe. Her name's Kim. She had her for 14 years. I would do anything to wake up at four in the morning one more time to let her out. I don't have to let these dogs out. I get to, I don't have to call my grandparents. I'm 38 years old. I still have grandparents to call. I do not have to rebuild this headquarters from dirt. There are a lot of people who run charities who never will get to the point of having 92 acres and a million supporters or whatever. It's like, I don't have to do anything. I get to, you know, everything that we see as this heavy obligation in life. I get it. Like I'm there, but for somebody else, that's their best day. And that somebody else isn't like some person in a developing country in some far off place. That's just you in the future. Like you in the future will wish you could come back to this moment mm. just one more time. And so I don't have to do anything I get to. What would you tell your 20 year old self? You're going to go into the gym one day and you're going to try to military press 155. It is too much for you. It's going to push down on your one of your discs. And for the rest of your life, you're going to feel it. Do not do that. <laughs> Alex Sheen, it has been said that all great people get to be remembered in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? It wasn't a show. Ooh. This is not a show to me. I've given a million dollars a year to this charity for years and years. I make as much as a kindergarten teacher. I give everything to this. And a lot of people think that there's some other way I'm making money or some other thing I'm trying to do. Ain't nothing else. I hope somebody remembers that. I remember it. And uh, the millions of lives you're impacting around the world remember that too. And I promise you this, your father is in awe of the son that he helped raise. Alex Sheen, thank you for not making this thing a show. Thank you for doing it because you said you would. And thank you for reminding the rest of us that our word matters and the best is yet to come. I appreciate it, John. And, and uh, thank you for your support. 
My friends, that is Alex Sheen. He is an awesome man. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Don't miss it. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side that you were going to love Alex. You're going to love his heart. You're going to love his work and his drive for being real, practical, and transformational in his commitments in life. One of my favorite takeaways from our conversation today, you probably wrote it down, is that you can pretend to care, but you can't pretend to show up. Isn't that powerful? Are you looking to be a little bit better at making promises to yourself? What about this one? How about making a list of 100 things that you want to do before you die? The reason I ask you that is because in February of 2021, we welcomed on my buddy, and this guy is my friend. His name is Ben Nempton of MTV's The Buried Life. Back in 2006, Ben and three childhood friends started The Buried Life. It's a list of 100 things that they wanted to do before they died. For every item on the list that they accomplished, they would then help a stranger cross something off their bucket list. Well, so far to date of the 100 things, and by the way, they were wild things, Ben has crossed off 93 items, including becoming a best-selling author, including making a television show, including being interviewed by Oprah, shooting basketball with Barack Obama, among many, many, many other things. It's a great conversation. He's an amazing guy. And if you want to learn more about Ben, making that list and living into your promises, check it out at episode 336, or just cruise on over to the Live Inspired Podcast website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And I'll have a link to the Ben Nimpton episode right there. My friends, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast movement. And I want to remind you that the foundation is firm. Your commitment matters. And the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.